0: Every opportunity you get, whether it's a school play, whether it's a local television station, whether it's something big, take advantage of every opportunity. You never know who's watching. You never know what's gonna happen. And just work your ass off to get it to where you really love it and don't compromise that. Then it'll grow.
1: You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guest is famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host,
2: Eric Huber. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Marty Caldner. How you doing? Cool. How you doing? Good, good. So, have to start it off, you know, when you were first born, did you like come out and start organizing people to do a comedy show? Like where did it all start? Where are you from? Yeah, when I was born,
0: I came out directing. I directed myself to my mother's breast. Perfect. Therapy initiative. (laughs) But I actually grew up and I had a dual upbringing. Very interesting. Uh That's how I developed my eye by accident. But I'm known for my eye, not just comedy, but music and especially women. And my mother and father were divorced. My father left when I was two and I never saw him again. Wow. My mother was like really struggling and he didn't send money, although I never resented him for it. And he was extremely wealthy. So I grew up in a lower middle-class home in Cincinnati, Ohio, with pictures on the wall from Kmart and furniture that didn't match. And stolen sweet and low packs and silverware that didn't match. You know, she was just scrambling. She worked three jobs to give me and my sister somewhat of an existence. When my father died unexpectedly at 10, the family in Chicago said, oh my God, he's got a boy and he's the last remaining caller. We want to culture him up. So between the time I was 10 and 18, I spent every summer in Chicago and really loved that part of my family. But what would happen is, is that I was so poor, I would fly out of my Little League baseball uniform, and when I'd get there, I'd be picked up by a chauffeur who had no problem driving down the wrong way, Archie, down the wrong way streets. All of a sudden, I find myself in the penthouse of the Drake Hotel with real Monet's, real Chacals, real Picassos, you know, fine art butlers, China, you know everything that the cream of the wealth have, because they were extremely wealthy. My family owned all the South Street in Chicago. There was a Calder building. We owned a I mean, just so much stuff, it's hard to really put into words. Now, I always wanted to go back where I was in charge, but I developed an eye. It was easy to see the difference between a Kmart ship and a Picasso. I didn't even realize it though. I had no idea, but the osmosis of being around that kind of art for months at a time sunk into me and gave me an eye. And when I started shooting entertainment, I was known for shooting women because I made them look beautiful because I had an eye. And that eye has really served me well. So I, I missed something, obviously, not having both parents. But I learned survival skills, and I got a career out of it, quite honestly. So,
2: so taking a step back. So your your family had you up in Chicago, or your, I guess your distant family had you up in Chicago during the summers. And did you end up going to college after
0: that? Wait, what, what? Yeah, I kind of- went to the University of Kentucky. Okay. And spent five years there. Okay. I didn't graduate because I didn't give a – can I cuss? Yeah, please feel free. I didn't give a fuck. All I wanted to do was party. Uh-huh. I led the school in W's. I wanted to stay out of the war, but you know, I was an artist and didn't know it. I didn't actually know it until I took a psychedelic trip uh-huh. right, uh, on synthetic psilocybin. And what happened was is my friend went to Berkeley and he came back with a tab like this big, full of synthetic psilocybin. And my three of us went down to the refineries because it was so illegal. We got out of Motel 6, and we emptied this capsule into a glass of water. The three of us drank it. I must have got the most because I was actually stuck for three months. Now, instead of me playing poker, rabble-rousing, starting fights, I found myself sitting under a tree reading Gabron and Sartre and Nietzsche. I always wanted to be back to myself, but I didn't mind it. Okay. And what it did was, it opened up creative side in my brain, which had been blocked by all the stimuli I had gotten in schools. So I remember one day I broke out of it, punched a guy next to me and said, I'm back. But I still gained this creativity. Because of it, it was always in there. But it unlocked it. So I've never taken any sense, because I didn't want to get stuck again. But That's what happened to me.
2: And how old were you at that point?
0: I was, I think, 19 or 20. Okay, so you were still early in college, but... Yeah, I was early in school. And then when I got out, you know, even though I was creative, I was still a bum. And, you know, I liked to gamble and women and drugs and everything else that goes with that. My mother was extremely worried about me. I was now twenty three or 22 years old, just about to be 23. I didn't have a fucking clue what I was going to do. And she said she was one of her jobs was she was the manager of the Southwest edition of TV Guide. So she worked with all the TV stations. She said, would you consider taking an interview at a TV station? I said... Yeah, that's my anniversary. That's coming right up, actually. So I said, Yeah, why not? I went in there. And the first day I was there, there had been a plane crash at the Greater Cincinnati Airport. And the, it was like broadcast news, the scurrying going back and forth. And I was like, I like the action of it. You know, I thought this is pretty interesting. And then, so I got this job, $89 a week as a prop man, moving sets around. And the first show I worked on was the Nick Clooney show which is George Clooney's father. George was a seven-year-old running around in the studio. And all the lights and the applause signs, I was mesmerized and I knew this is where I was supposed to be. I had found my calling. So now instead of being a lazy bum, they couldn't get me out of there. I was there like 24 seven and the engineers would teach me and they would give me coat hangers made out of TV screens. Here's shot composition. Teach me about all that. To make the story short, seven weeks later, I was directing. And I became a superstar director in Cincinnati.
2: So how did that happen? I'm just curious in terms of the actual situation. Like you're seven weeks in. You don't have experience. You're just coming in. You see me.
0: The first show I got was called the All Night Theater, okay, which was one camera that the engineers would rotate on because they didn't want to do it. And they would sit there and basically sleep with the camera focused on the guy. And I took out my Zettel television production and I would say, Dolly left, pan right, zoom up. And they said, listen, kid, if you shut up, we will teach you. If you're going to continue to act like an asshole, we're going to bury you. (laughs) Shut up. They taught me. One thing led to another. And the thing that was the hardest thing to direct in that city was this Al Shadokati News. Now the Al Shadokati News, Al Shadokati was a taskmaster, and the Al Shadokati News, everything was either a picture, a slide, a film, or a videotape. You only saw the newscaster before the break and after the break for ten seconds. Yep. And it was almost impossible to direct. I mean, you had to be like on speed. It was like almost impossible, but I would audit it. I would go in the control room and just watch the guy do it and watch the guy do it and try and soak it up because I was trying to soak everything up. And one day a tragic accident happened. His daughter was hit by a car and killed. And there was seven directors on staff. I was the only one that was there. And the general manager who hated me, who was really a right-wing asshole, with a picture of Barry Goldwater and J. Edgar Hoover on his wall, and a desk that set up like four feet on top of you, with a gun in his drawer, and hated me because I had long hair, and said, OK, pal, sink or swim, somehow, by some miracle. I got through that perfectly. And the newscaster called up to the room and he says, kid, keep going, you're doing this great, keep going. And then I was a star. From that moment on, I was a star. It was the talk of the station, how this inexperienced, I think I'd been there like six weeks or a month, how this inexperienced guy went in there and pulled this off. Wow! It was like a force bigger than me. I was just so locked in and had watched enough. And the engineers helped me a little bit, you know. Until one day when I walked in, the guy said, "Okay, I'm going to do exactly what you say. He wouldn't even look at the monitors. But you know, so that became that. And I stayed there. They raised me to hundred a week to be a director. There you and go. I stayed there. And I finally got up to like 170 a week, but I wanted to make ten thousand dollars a year. That was the benchmark. Right? How what year is this, if you don't mind asking? 1972. Got it. Okay, I started in 69. That's yeah. I'm I'm a veteran. So in yeah. 1972. I, I asked for a raise and I went into the general manager's office and he said, I'm not giving you a raise. He, I said, "Why? Well, you don't think I'm the best director in the city? He says, no doubt. You're by far the best director of anybody in the city, but I'm not giving you a raise. I said, why not? He says, you're a lefty, your hair is too long, you don't wear your jacket and tie all the time. I don't reward bad boys with bad behavior with raises. I said, thank you. I walked out to my production manager and said, I quit. And I saw a broadcasting magazine sitting on the table. And in there was an ad for a director in Cleveland, Ohio, that paid $13,500 a year. And you had to like do commercials and stuff. That's where I learned about lighting. So I got in my car, raced to Cleveland. I nailed the job. I hated Cleveland. It was like, it was like being in hell. Okay. It was like the river was on fire. It was dirty. It was lonely. I was married, but it was not for me. I had a kid and I just, I, I was really, really, miserable. And then I got a call one day from another director in Cincinnati who had moved to BZ in Boston named Ron Demarias, who I later moved out to LA. And he said, the Celtics need a director. There's an opening. You want to talk to this guy, Paul Costs. I bet I broke every speed limit that I could to get there. And he said to me, you can have this job and I'm gonna tell you, you can direct anything. I can just tell. So I nailed the job. So I made a name for myself because I would do cold openings and tell stories and things things that they do generally now, but were not done back then and set it up. And I had this good friend who was the announcer, Dick Stockton. He was working for a little company called HBO, and they started hiring me to do some freelancing, hired me to produce Wimbledon, and then I had two job offers. I had one, the NBC Sports, which would be to direct like the World Series, the Super Bowl, the Kentucky Derby, the NBA, all the big sports, and for like 85000 a year. And then one at this little shit company in New York with seven people for thirty-five thousand a year, but told me I could be in charge of the look of the network, the fuel of the network, the sound of the network, and the tenants, how they were going to be, and do all their entertainment specials. And yeah. that was called HBO. So I yeah. took it, and wow. from there, I mean, my career changed on one review. I went from thirty-five to three hundred on one review by a guy named John O'Connor in the New York Times. The first entertainment special I did was called An Evening with Robert Klein from Haverford College. And I was just making it up as I went along. You know, I was faking it until I made it. And I designed do the set, and I designed the lights. I had no clue what I was doing. But I was just trying to, you know. And if you look at that show, you'll see I went, I went verite into the bowels of the the College with a big studio camera. But I didn't know about lenses. I had a wide lens and his hand looks about eight feet long, you know. But I knew I had sprinkled magic on it. So I brought it back to HBO. My boss said, this is awful. There's not enough close-ups, blah, blah, blah. And he wasn't wrong, but I said, but you know, it's magical. I think it's arable, It's magical. And he said, well, I'm not airing it." His boss, a guy named Jerry Levin, said... We have subscribers. This isn't our gut. I don't think it's so bad. We're gonna air it. And that was on December thirty-first, nineteen seventy-five. I was sitting in a cold hotel room in New York. It was freezing cold, calling my ex-wife, saying, You think I can get my job back in Boston? I think I'm done. And the next day, John O'Connor wrote four columns, program marked by innovative process. I don't know where they got Marty Callner, they should bottle, blah, 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 blah. And then I was really a star. Wow. From there, the ascension was unbelievable. And I stayed there and did everything big. And now I'm in a seven figure a year job. And I'm living in, i moved to California. You you still with HBO? With that uh, working at HBO, but now I'm at seven figures. And I was in. A little more than 10,000 a year. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like really getting well known. Yeah. And not, not because I wanted to, just because my work was so good. Because I always took the attack that I'm always as good as my last show. And I was always scared going into every one. And I still feel that way today, yeah. even with my repertoire. So I was laying in bed in, in Beverly Hills in this big house. And there's something called the Z Channel was on. And a music video came on called Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes, directed by an Australian named Russell Mulcahy. I said, holy shit. This is unbelievable. It's breaking every rule that I've learned. It's jump cutting. It's crossing the line. It's also the most artistic and entertaining thing I've ever seen. I got to go do this. I said to my wife, I got to go do this. I said, that means that we could be broke. I'm going to give up the job. We could lose the house. We're going to starting all over again. But artistically, I have to go do this. And to her credit, and I'm still married to her, she said, go for it. We can, I'll live with you in a one room in a desert. So I went to New York. I met with this guy named Ahmed Erdogan, who was signed to Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin, Atlantic Records. I said, I want to do a music video. And so I, I was somewhat well-known. So he said, I got three bands. Pick one. They didn't really know what music videos were that much. One was a band from New Orleans called Zebra. Another one was In Excess, who I'm sure you heard of. And he says, I got this bar band. I don't know what to do with it. I may drop them. They're big in England, but they can't get arrested here. Take a look, what do you think? And that was Twisted Sister. Do. i will do it. I'll take that. And then I did this video, We're Not Gonna Take It, which had a narrative on it. What do you want to do with your life? And when you hear, I want to rock, that's me saying, I want to rock. Yeah. It's my son doing the Pete Townsend windmills. And this video, changed the game in mtv because now there was a story and for the next 12 or 13 years i didn't have a manager and agent just mtv i never stopped working i think i did a couple hundred
2: videos and you did this all yourself you didn't build a team and i mean I knew you built a team in production but you didn't have manager agent as you said
0: at, at the time yeah so i said so i didn't need him mtv was my agent you know they'd see who directed the video Yep. read and greed was set in And I always had this rule with these bands that I got Final Cut. And they would say, we're not giving you Final Cut. We don't give anybody Final Cut. I said, okay, do it once. And if you don't like what happens, never hire me again. Give me the one shot. You know, I did 18 videos with Aerosmith. I did multiple videos with a lot of artists because I knew I could do that better than they could. They could make music, but they couldn't do what I did. And I said, I don't fuck with your music don't fuck with my film and watch what happens and they all went to number one and all of a sudden they sold millions and millions of records and got really rich that was just the way it was and it was it was fantastic and and that's why they were successful because i wouldn't let them out of my hands until i was happy Uh, so question there what was can you say what
2: was like one of if not your most favorite project to work on most exciting video you did
0: most, my favorite video is an Aerosmith video called Living on the Edge. Yep. That's my favorite. I know I did all the lists of Silverstone and the Tyler videos, and I love those. They're all dear to my heart. All the white snakes dear to my heart. But Living on the Edge was just me and my mind without any kind of actors or outside forces, just stuff that I made up. Planned it. I didn't make it up on the spot. Right. and it to me is the is the finest work I've done in the music video world.
2: Yeah, and any uh, I left again. In terms of putting together these videos, any experience you got? You know, you were kind of living in the peak of the music industry from the you know sex, drugs, and rock and roll standpoint. Any fun stories on that side of it too?
0: Well, I decided to make instead of making women sex objects with the video crying, I made the woman the protagonist. In uh-huh. the, the video, she went like this, and all the women in America cheered. And I use strong women because I was kind of a woman's liver myself, based on having a single mom. So I would make strong women rather than having them objects they are. Although I do that too. And you know, when I left MTV, I had two things happen. I had a censorship issue. I usually beat them, but they made me take out a shot that I thought set up all the rest of the shots in the crazy video, and it was great, but it ruined it for me. at the same time my boss at hbo who didn't talk to me for 10 years because i left called me up and he said i've got a problem with an artist would you consider coming back i'll make it worth your while not to be on staff but to do this project i said who's the artist he said madonna and this is when madonna was madonna yeah okay what year is this i don't remember 80 something but she was like late 80s yeah she was like you know the shit. So you yeah. know, I went to Australia, I did The Girlie Show, and HBO just started flooding me with shows. And I did a bunch of shows for them. Comedy, you know, Chris Rock, Robin Williams, Phoebe Herman, who I discovered, and did all their big music specials from NSYNC to Justin Timberlake to Britney to Garth Brooks to Bette Midler. I did The Rolling Stones, seven different specials. You know, I really had a big music Career and then I created a show which is going to be on August tenth on HBO, which is now in its twentieth year, called Hard Knocks. Yep, the most popular sports show in the history of of television. So uh, it's a long story, but I created, I shoved it down the NFL's throat, and that's a shield that's impossible to break. But I broke it, and and my latest thing I created is going to be for Netflix uh, called The Hall, and basically it's the stand-up comedy Hall of Fame and there's oh. being an actual hall built in Jamestown, New York. We were supposed to shoot on May 3rd, 2020, but COVID happened in March and we got shut down. Now it's not going to be till 22. And I had a whole organization of managers, agents, club owners who voted on who would be in, and we had all that done, it was all posthumous. It was George Carlin, Robin Williams, Richard Pryor, and John Rivers. And who I had to present with Netflix help was one to introduce somebody and one to induct them were Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, Jerry Seinfeld, Kevin Hart, Billy Crystal. I mean, of length, it was everybody and everybody in comedy. So that was a disappointment, but it's coming back.
2: Nice. When are you supposed to do that? That's
0: career in a nutshell. (laughs) And when are you supposed to bring that back, that comedy show? It's coming back in May of 22. Okay. Cornerstone of their huge comedy festival, assuming that they get this variant under control, yeah, which is an issue unless people get vaccinated. Right, and I agree. The
2: curious, you you know, had this amazing music video career. And you get pulled back to HBO. They throw you in with Madonna. They start throwing you other things. What about that has you drive? Like you you know you you skip through about twenty years there. But where does the desire come from to create something like Hard Knocks and keep? pushing for new things and
0: reinvent myself it's just who i am yeah okay I'm, uh, I'm i'm under the red theory okay which is research surveillance execution and domination and once i'm through stage four i'm ready to move on to something else
2: yeah and as you i mean as it shows with you going after music videos from hbo it's not about the money it's about the actual
0: project it's the art it's the work never about the money. yeah okay never i would I did Paul Simon Unplug for five thousand yeah. dollars. It's not about the money. It never has been for me. Now, yes, I was paid well, but it was like thrown at me. I would have done it for nothing, because to this day, all no matter what I do, all I care about. I'm glad that 25 years later, you can go to my Instagram and look at anything in my archives that I've posted, and it's still all good because I never let it out until I was happy with it and I had a choice not to become famous because of the way I grew up I had a family and instead of going out with all these stars and getting my picture taken with the paparazzi and becoming a household name I went home for dinner every night and I'd say someday I'll be known for the body of work and that's what happened
2: yeah makes sense and throughout all this where would you say you enjoyed it the most in terms I'm curious industry-wise like was it TV is it shows is it comedy is it music music video. Music videos was the most enjoyable part.
0: Yeah, because you know I'm really good at multi-camera stuff. Mm-hmm. Forty-seven cameras on Justin Timberlake Live. Wow. But music videos are art. Okay. Yeah. And it's one camera, and yeah. you like for every angle. We used to shoot everything in 35 millimeter film with panavision cameras, and there's no greater sense of satisfaction at the end of a day of shooting 35 millimeter film and capturing that magic. It's like the best feeling in the world. I love that the most by far. That's fair.
2: By the I mean, way, I got to ask a little anecdote. Did you know Guy Webster, the photographer? No. He did a lot of the rock and roll album covers and was a big rock and roll photographer. Just awesome guy. So, a couple more questions for me. You obviously have the comedy thing going, but what's next? What do you? What's on the horizon for you? What's exciting you other than that on forward?
0: I'm working on a lot of climate change stuff great we're starting some viral challenges and i'm planning to do a huge global concert and i'm also planning to do something from space that they're going to photograph hands across the world we're in nasa and they're going to link it up um involved in the world peace festival with stevie wonder in chicago mm-hmm. i'm not sure what, what i'm going to do next i know that as soon as i can get somebody to give me a final cut i'll start doing films but I'm not gonna spend a year and a half of my life to have somebody justifying their existence in a suit fucking it up. Yeah. But so that's hard to get. But once somebody says, yeah, yeah, you can have it and they'll be smart, then I'll do that. And I'll do it for no money. I don't care. I don't yeah. you know, I, I would like to conquer that. That's the only thing I haven't really conquered. And uh, I've got a lot of offers, but it's always the same. You know, Cher kept offering me movies. So, but I can't get your final cut. And I said, well, I'm not doing it. I'm yeah. not spending a year and a half of my life so somebody can compromise it.
2: Have you thought about producing it yourself so you don't even have to ask
0: someone? I've thought about producing it myself, but it's always about the same problem, isn't it? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Fair <laughs> so enough. When I'm working for HBO and the record companies, they all had plenty of money. Yeah. Netflix has plenty of money, so they don't mind spending it. Yeah. And and because they know they're going to get quality. But when you got to try and raise it yourself, I've tried it a few times. It's a different animal.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a nightmare industry. I've been ancillary involved in it in the past. So last question for me is, for someone trying to pursue their dreams, I mean, you are the epitome of it, where you went after exactly, it took you a while to figure out, but in your 20s, you figured out exactly what you want to do and then mastered it, dominated it. What do you advise someone that is just getting started on that? What is the one piece of advice you give either you wish you got early or you did get or took or thought of that you think people don't normally hear?
0: Okay. I have an answer for that. Every opportunity you get, whether it's a school play, whether it's a local television station, whether it's something big, take advantage of every opportunity. You never know who's watching. You never know what's going to happen. And just work your ass off to get it to where you really love it and don't compromise that then it'll grow so that's and don't work for the money okay because if you work for the money you're gonna fail all right i promise you art is subjective and you can feel my passion through my music videos and my concerts so You know, that's and just remember, no matter what you do, the next thing has got to be just as good or better. (laughs) And you can start in a little local. You don't have to start in L.A. or New York. You can start local, but take advantage of that opportunity. If it's a one camera interview show, take advantage. Find a way to make it different. Find a way to make it great. Find a way to do the soft lighting or whatever. Somehow that you get noticed a little bit. And it's word them out. It's like movies, you know, it's kind of word them out. That's my advice, you know, for whatever it's worth.
2: No, I think it's worth a lot. Hopefully people are listening. So this has been awesome, Marty. You have an incredible story. So thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk.
0: Pleasure. My pleasure, indeed. It's
1: great. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts all month-to-month month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an e, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk.